0: Welcome to Ninety Six Greers, a podcast where we watch every feature film with Judy Greer in the cast. I'm Reg Lynn. and I'm Patrick Rapoll. And today we're going to be talking about Studio Ghibli film uh, from 2005 called The Cat Returns. Well, actually, this wasn't. This was a 2005 release in the states. That's right. We with are, the we're... English dub with Judy Greer in the cast.
1: That's correct. So Judy Greer was not in the 2002 The Cat Returns because that was obviously the original Japanese language cast. Right, yeah. Um,
0: And, And this was before Studio Ghibli was popular enough in the States where... Dubs were happening right away.
1: Right. So I actually have, I have a little timeline here because I think I do think Studio Ghibli is just this institution. They're everywhere. You mm-hmm. know, I think you could go into any target and probably find a Studio Ghibli thing, whether it's like mm-hmm. a t-shirt or a backpack or a whatever, you mm-hmm. can find a Totoro. Um, but like that wasn't always the case. And no. in fact, that had all, they had only really just begun to break into America when this came out. Um, so the timeline of Studio Ghibli is they started making films in 1984 uh, with Nausicaa Valley of the Wind that had a very bad American release uh, called Warriors of the Wind that was uh, it was like cut like 21 minutes out of it and they changed the context and they made it less about environmentalism and it was just a whole bad experience and they, uh, they had sort of a spotty history of being released in America in theaters or on video for a while. Um, until disney sort of picked up the contract and said okay well we're gonna release your movies we're gonna release your their, your movies as is um the first one of those that got released uh was kiki's delivery service in 1998 i don't think that actually got like a wide theatrical release i think that played a film festival and then yeah. got a home video release
0: through disney and that that, was, that that was almost a decade after the film was actually produced that's
1: correct yeah yeah, so there are some of these some of these movies like they got English dubs that like played on airplanes and stuff. Like if you went on Japan Air, you could see a English version of a uh um like a Porco Rosso or something, but like not anywhere else. Um I I, I don't know if that's exactly true of Porco Rosso, that's the one that came to mind cuz I love that pig.
0: I'm a pretty big Studio Ghibli fan and mm-hmm. and I've been into Studio Ghibli um since like the early aughts, I mean, mm-hmm. um, you know, I wasn't able, I wasn't like, you know, ahead of the curve. I remember *Mononoke* being released and being really excited to see that because that was, um, that was around the time when anime was starting to be cool, and that yeah. was like a big, a big release that was really excited for me because I wanted to see what anime was all about. Um, and it, you know, blew my mind. Um, this was back in like the late nineties, early aughts, where, uh, if you were interested in anime or other Japanese pop culture things, there would be like one small Store at the mall that yes, you could go to. Absolutely. Um, I, I think I had like a Totoro coin pouch that was like very precious to me because it was like, you know, you couldn't just go to any Target and get it. You couldn't go right. on eBay. It was like oh, right. I you to, went like, to
1: Suncoast Video. Yeah. They had five anime videotapes, and one was Akira, and one was Ghost in the Shell, and one was Fist of the North Star, <laughs> one was a Dragon Ball Z, three episodes of Dragon Ball Z, and one was three episodes of Evangelion. Like it was yeah. it was not everywhere um so even princess mononoke when that came out in 1999 in america that was a sort of a high profile release for that kind of movie Mm -hmm. it didn't actually do that well it was released by miramax and they did not consider it to Mm -hmm. um be too much of a success and it wasn't any so when spirited away came out in 2002 disney actually like barely released it they didn't really advertise it very much it got released in a very small like double digit number of theaters across the country and it wasn't until it won the academy award that it had all this attention on it mm-hmm. that disney sort of released it wide in america or wider not as wide as an aladdin or something would get but wider than uh, an anime would certainly uh, and that was sort of the thing in 2002 that cemented Studio Ghibli's um, sort of position in America. And mm-hmm. then obviously, uh, Howl's Moving Castle was successful. Ponyo was successful. Right. But it was in 2005 and 6, was those were the two years where Disney went back and released DVDs of all of these movies with English dubs. Mm-hmm. And they got uh, you know big name voice actors for a lot of them. They had star-studded casts. That was just sort of a part of Disney's approach to animated films at that time. Right. Um, and so an interesting thing about The Cat Returns is The Cat Returns is a sort of spinoff of a movie from 1995 called Whisper of the Heart. Whisper of the Heart came out on DVD a full year after The Cat Returns did. because So that was how it sort of landed in America. Mm-hmm. Um, but so yeah, we're, we're talking about a 2002 movie, but we're talking about a 2005 dub. And we're really like talking about That initial or mid aughts burst of Studio Ghibli sort Mm -hmm. of hitting the American markets, being released by a big distributor like Disney, Mm -hmm. and like people rediscovering all these movies that came out in the Mm eighties and nineties.
0: And had you have you seen Cat Returns before uh, sitting down to um, watch it for this podcast? No,
1: I hadn't. I had seen, but I had seen Whisper of the Heart. Uh So in that era, I was real. I loved Spirited Away. And I thought How's Moving Castle was really cool. I didn't I didn't quite, you know, it was. it's a harder movie to wrap your head around than Spirited Away. And I don't think I really got it as a teenager or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I definitely made a point to try to, like, rent a lot of these Studio Ghibli movies from the library. And one of those was Whisper of the Heart. And anime with me is, like, a very push-pull relationship where I feel like I'm constantly trying to get into anime and it never quite happens because there's mm-hmm. always something about the sensibility, about the sense of humor, about uh, some kind of aesthetic choice that, like, me off and I find embarrassing mm-hmm. and I think that's actually like Studio Ghibli is largely uh, free of a lot of those like more out there idiosyncratic um, super Japanese like sense of humor mm-hmm. sort of touches that a lot of and I think that's why they've crossed over so successfully in a way that a lot of other anime nowadays you know something like one piece is like the biggest thing ever but like it takes a long time for us uh, for America as a culture to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, So Whisper of the Heart really spoke to me because it didn't have like magic gems and it didn't have like a faded like hero of the universe or anything. It was just about a girl in middle school Mm -hmm. who kind of likes a boy and kind of doesn't like that she likes the boy and there's another boy who likes her and she doesn't like it. And it was all just like very down to earth and relatable. And I, I just I always thought Whisper of the Heart was like one of my all time favorite Studio Ghibli movies. Um, so I was excited when I looked up the origin of The Cat Returns and saw it was a off of Whisper of the Heart. I was excited to mm-hmm. check this out.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen either. I mean, as I said before, um, I am a pretty big Studio Ghibli fan, but uh, if you haven't picked up from this podcast already, I am not a completionist when it comes to things that I like. Um, I, I just sort of, you know, am a dilettante. I go here, I go there. I never really do anything 100%, um, which I know is like a, a cardinal sin when you're a nerd, but... <laughs> There it is. So I hadn't I hadn't seen either. Um, I think this is just an area of taste where we tend to be a bit a, a bit opposed. Where I I do gravitate towards um, things that are more fantastic. The Ghibli films that I tend to prefer are you know like your your spirited's Aways, your Kiki's Delivery Services, your Totoros. I hadn't seen this, uh, but I was complete. I mean, I was completely charmed by Whisper of the Heart. It is a slice of life about a very particular uh, moment in this young woman's, um, this young girl's life. She's about to uh, finish middle school and go off into high school. You know, come to think of it, it makes me think just the tiniest bit of Dazed and Confused. It, it just hmm, sort so? of has that, it, it just sort of has that. Um, that particular brand of like nostalgia and emotional tenderness to it, where it's you know not only looking at childhood but looking at like this specific moment of transition. Sure. Where, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Where like as an adult, it you might think back and not really think much of it, but when when you're in that moment, it just feels like your entire world's going to change and you're stepping into the unknown even though you're just like going mm-hmm. to high school. Um, and there is that sort of um, a fleeting, tenuous relationship that's like really beautiful because it like blossoms over the course of, of the movie. I think that yeah. might be
1: something that like Whisper of the Heart is, and there are other um, dramatic slice of life uh, movies that Studio Ghibli did. They did yeah. films like ocean waves right. and um,
0: I saw from up on Poppy Hill it didn't really stick with me no yeah um, and that
1: was later and then like only yesterday I think they did before mm-hmm. so so it wasn't totally um, it wasn't totally outside the realm of what they had done before but it's yeah. certainly outside of what they're associated with um, in America Oh in yeah absolutely but, absolutely but I think something that it do, that whisper of the heart does share with a Totoro with a spirited away is this sort of like electric sense of possibility mm. and this this feeling that like something big is coming around the corner corner mm-hmm. and the nature of that thing is totally out of your control and you and you can't guess what it's going to be oh yeah absolutely and obviously like they they tend to tell stories about uh children or young adults Mm -hmm. and they tend to tell stories about people in that point of life but Mm -hmm. but they do fully capture that feeling without the uh use of forest gods or anything uh just Mm -hmm. the just the nature of being in middle school and sort of realizing that you have to start making decisions about your future like Mm -hmm. that feeling itself is is powerful enough to to get those emotions across.
0: Oh yeah, and and even when it when it is a more magical setting than than Whisper of the Heart, you usually, I mean, especially when it's like a young woman protagonist, usually the, uh, the 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 magical aspects of the world are kind of folding back into her emotional journey and where she is in her life. So it's not like a like like a Harry Potter kind of thing where it's like oh, it's more about um, building like a, a magical world and kind of putting like this. Raman in it, and they don't really necessarily comment on each other. Don't email me about this. Um, <laughs> it, it is a bit more um, interconnected.
1: Yeah. So in Whisper of the Heart, Shizuku um, becomes totally transfixed by this small statue of this cat. Mm-hmm. Um, the Baron. It's a it's he's got a full, very Germanic name that I completely slipped my mind yeah. and I did not actually yeah. write down in my And notes. he's an
0: anthropomorphic cat. He's like he's yes. like standing up, he's wearing a suit.
1: He has like jeweled eyes, and mm-hmm. there's like a specific crack in the eyes mm-hmm. that makes them shimmer in a specific way, she finds bewitching. Um, and she realizes you know, she's a voracious reader. One of the ongoing storylines is that she keeps checking out these books that some other person has checked out, and she's sort of convinced herself this is her true love, and it turns out it's this boy who's been mocking her (laughs) and so like that's one of the central dramas at the beginning of the movie um but like she being this reader she decides that um what she wants to do with her life is she wants to write and tell stories and that she decides that with the sort of with the help of the uh, antique shop owner where this um little stat cat statue uh exists Mm -hmm. she uh he helps her sort of discover that she wants to write uh stories about the cat uh or a story about the baron Mm -hmm. um And so the Baron in Whisper of the Heart is the Baron in The Cat Returns. Um, If is he the cat of uh, of the title? There's a lot of cats returning different places for different reasons throughout the movie. So it's Mm. hard to say exactly which cat is uh, Muda. Certainly returns. That's a big return Mm -hmm. in that movie. Yeah,
0: Muda being the other character from Whisper of the Heart who is uh, a character in Cat Returns. That's that's
1: right. She follows this uh funny cat that's on the train, um, who and and he takes this sort of winding trail and ends up right in front of this antique store. And that is how she discovers this antique store that's uh not too far from where her father works. And um but all everything you said about like a girl's journey and everything, that all folds back into the cat returns because Um, whereas Whisper of the Heart is not a magical story. The Cat Returns is 100% the definition of magical girls fantasy. Right. Um,
0: and I went into Cat Returns because we watched Whisper of the Heart first. So, and, and in Whisper of the Heart, when, um, when Shizuku is writing her story, um you you see scenes in her imagination of what she's writing where there's a there's this like young woman protagonist who's in a magical world and the baron is is guiding her and they're they're off on their magical adventure and then it kind of cuts back to her and and she's you know sitting in class daydreaming and her teacher gets mad at her kind of um like like that's that's a good chunk of uh of the film when she's kind of going through this this like consuming creative process. Mm-hmm. So when we watched uh Cat Returns, I assumed that it was just going to flesh out what had already uh been established in Whisper of the Heart and that was not quite the case. Like like there's um there's like a kernel of similarity to this story that's teased in Whisper of the Heart uh but Cat Returns is besides the two characters and the sort of vibe of the movie i I guess um it's really its own story and its own world
1: um which probably brings us to we should uh talk about what the plot of that story is
0: yes i would be more than happy to summarize it Haru, a modern-day teenage girl, saves the life of a cat who turns out to be Prince Loon, the son of the Cat King. The Cat King showers Haru with gifts and decides that she should marry Prince Loon. Haru doesn't want to marry a cat and seeks assistance from the Baron and Muta. Before they can help her, she's catnapped to the Cat Kingdom, where she starts to transform into a cat. The Baron and Muta rescue Haru from the castle with the help of a sympathetic cat servant named Yuki. In order to reach the portal back to the human world, the Baron, Muta, and Haru find their way through a maze to the top of a high tower. Just as the Cat King catches up with them, Prince Loon shows up, rejects the betrothal to Haru, and instead proposes to Yuki. The Cat King tries to keep Haru in the Cat Kingdom, but Prince Loon, the Baron, and Muta help Haru to escape back to the human world, where she turns back into a human girl. The end. Yeah, what did you think about uh, Cat Returns being a Whisper of the Heart fan? I
1: well, <laughs> I, I thought I thought the Cat Returns was delightful, uh, totally separate from any Whisper of the Heart fandom. Okay. Um, the connection, as we stated, pretty tenuous between the two. So Whisper of the Heart, uh, was based on a manga by, and I do apologize if I pretty much every Japanese name, it's totally possible I'm mispronouncing. So, Mm -hmm. uh, apologies ahead of time for all these, uh, mispronunciations, but Ayo Hiragi, uh, a woman who, uh, was sort of made famous for doing these sort of slice of life high school drama Mm -hmm. sort of mangas, um, and she also wrote the manga for The Cat Returns, but she sort of developed it side by side with Studio Ghibli. Mm-hmm. Um, they were released within a couple months of each other, so it wasn't an example of Studio Ghibli adapting a manga. It was more like a they brought her back. It's sort of like synergy. Yeah, they brought Michael Crichton to do uh, to write a sequel book to Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs> and that and the Lost World came out around the same time as the movie,
0: classic Jurassic Park move.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think Studio Ghibli was looking at uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, and said, "How can we get some of that?" <laughs> um, but like, other than a similar sort of creative, an animating creative spirit between the two, it's uh, it's very it's a very different movie. Mm. But I but it's just so it's just so light and it's so fluffy. And it, that's not a cat pun. That's just that's just like this is a movie where you really don't got to think about much. There's not many heavy themes. There's not like a sense of environmentalism. There's not a, like you watch princess Mononoke and there's just so much going on. Yeah. You know, you watch spirited away and, and, and it's very powerful and it's very moving. Mm-hmm. This is just like just some silly fun. And I really did find it very fun. Um, so I enjoyed the cat returns quite a bit.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with you. It is, it is light fun. I mean, it is well under 90 minutes does not overstay its welcome. Um, it's a lot goofier than most studio Ghibli movies I mean you, you watch a studio Ghibli movie you expect like you expect whimsy you expect sweetness but there there are just some straight up silly... Things going on in this movie, like the Cat King is this—I don't even know how to describe his personality. He's not like a surfer dude, but he just goes around calling everyone babe and saying chow and he's just like this, like like scruffy, smushed face. He's like a cat. burnout rock star. Yeah, he's like yeah, he's like a burnout he's, rock he's star. Bill, he's Bill
1: Nye in love, actually.
0: Yes, yeah, yeah. That, that's that's a really good parallel. Uh, voiced by Tim Curry, you know, there's there's just that sort of like weird characterization, or um, when uh w- when Haru saves the, the life of the prince and the and the cat kingdom is trying to repay her for her act of bravery. They uh they stuff her school locker full of mice and, you know, she has a complete fit because her locker's full of mice. And um yeah, it, it just it just kinda goes over the top in ways that I wasn't really expecting from from the Studio Ghibli movie. Um but it was it was a lot of fun. Sort of the the flip side of that for me is that there's a lot of plot holes in this movie and there's, <laughs> oh boy. Um, th- there was just a lot where things aren't really explained super well. Um, I I tend to like when a movie's flaws kind of uh, align with its concept. Um, so I was sort of imagining it as Oh, this is like you know a girl who is trying to write her first novel, and this is the first draft where she's just um, put her heroes up against a bunch of soldiers, and she doesn't know how to describe the fight. So instead of that, uh, the the stairs that the soldiers are standing on are just going to crumble, and they're all going to fall, and that's going to solve that problem. That whimsy,
1: yes, I I think uh, it's I think it's quite a gift to to have a metafictional conceit of little girl writes her first story. <laughs> yeah. (laughs) Um, I will say in general, and I think this is something I feel that a lot of fans of Studio Ghibli and particularly of Hayao Miyazaki may disagree with, like in general, I think Studio Ghibli's movies kind of feel like the storytelling kind of feels, um, I don't want to say not thought out because there's so many aspects that are so well considered, Mm -hmm. but like plot holes is something I just take like things just sort of arbitrarily happen constantly in, in these movies. Um, I, I kind of, I mean, Hayao Miyazaki is the director who is most associated with studio Ghibli and he did not direct this film. I don't think he had any real creative other than being like the head of studio. Right. I don't think he had any real, um, fine control over this movie. This movie was directed by a first time director, Hiroyuki Morita, but like, especially, um, Miyazaki's storytelling style for me tends to be and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens. Mm-hmm. And then if you, you know, in the good ones, the thing that happened at the beginning pays off at the very end. Mm-hmm. But there's not like a really rigorous logic to why the things in the middle happen. I think like Howl's Moving Castle is a good example of I, I spend that whole movie watching it just being like, OK, where are we now? Why? What? Like mm-hmm. every character sort of baffles me a little bit. Um <laughs> And, and so I kind of like that the cat returns at the very least does that, but like has so much whimsy that it's just sort of, you just can accept it and be like, well, of course, like it, it's not trying to like wrench your heartstrings. And therefore the fact that it's like just totally ridiculous. Like there's so many things about this movie that I'm, I'm just like, what is the cat bureau?
0: Is- yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so the, the Baron and Muta and they're, they have a, a raven friend named Toto and they are the cat bureau. And when Haru needs help because she's trying to get out of this engagement to Prince Loon, she hears a voice from out of nowhere. You never really know why she hears the voice Mm -hmm. or or that's like that. I mean, who the voice is and it's the voice of Judy Greer. her, Her dulcet tones bless us for the first time as this voice that comes out of nowhere. But why that happens is never quite explained. What the voice tells Haru is find the cat bureau and Haru finds the cat bureau and we never get an explanation as to what the Cat Bureau is. They and then... certainly
1: don't even seem like co-workers. Like, they seem like they barely tolerate each other.
0: Yeah, yeah, they... <laughs> <laughs> they kind of seem like like they're, they're neighbors and they've just learned to get along. They don't but...
1: snap into action like a team who has done this before. They sort of just happen to be there when she gets kidnapped by all the yeah. cats. And then they're like, well, I guess it's up to us to rescue her. They cause...
0: never mention anyone else they've helped. Um, even uh, I feel like later in the movie, other characters are like, oh, yes, the Cat Bureau... And you're like, well, I guess you know something about it, but we'll just have to um, take that for granted because we're not getting any more information about what this is.
1: Right. But it, uh, on the other hand, it's like a 74-minute movie. Right. Like it just keeps going. Like you don't really have a lot of time to stop and sure. consider these things. But it's it's it is a movie that is just I and I I think that is something I actually really appreciate. It is it is so economical. Mm-hmm. It is so. The period of time where she says, but cats can't talk, is like 30 seconds. And then right. she she saves the cat. There's this cat walking across the street with a little gift at its mouth. Very cute. It drops the gift and it's trying to pick it up. And there's like some of my favorite animation in the whole movie. Is it like trying to nudge the box as it like struggles to get it back in yeah. its mouth? Yeah. The logistics of its dumb cat mouth not being able to pick <laughs> up a box off the ground in the middle of the street as a truck comes careening towards it. Yeah. She, she steals her friend's lacrosse stick. She springs into action. Um, saves it, and then it does a little bow and it walks away. And she's like, that's not true. And then later when she tells her mom, later she tells her mom, yeah, something weird happened to me today. Her mom tells her story. You know, you used to think you could talk to cats. And she goes, oh, I guess I can still talk to cats. And that's uh, that's it. There's not like a long period of time of like setting up. No, this couldn't be happening. But what you know, uh, justify this reality. There's no justification of any reality. Yeah,
0: yeah. And then later that night, the the cat king shows up with his train of of courtiers and his his secret service tuxedo cats it's
1: so funny (laughs) they are just like booting and stomping and punching and throwing the stray cats so here's another i do like there's empty space because so little has any explanation whatsoever Mm -hmm. i do wonder like what is the animosity between the stray cats who get really riled up at this like uh sort of parade coming through and and the cats in the cat kingdom who don't live in our world they just can venture into our world by the, thinking with portals
0: they're the protester cats
1: they're the protester so this is like these are like the under the cat underclass
0: that's what i think <laughs> watching the movie the second time that was the decision that i kind of landed on um i mean because the first time i was watching it i was like oh are these cats that don't have this like magical ability or you know what whatever it is that makes them able to um to stand on their hind legs and walk around kind of weirdly the 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 animation for the cats walking on their hind legs i found a little creepy (laughs) they They look like they're gonna fall at any second and i get very like oh please don't fall um but uh where they're just cats they're not like anthropomorphized cats Mm -hmm. so so maybe it's like at first i was like oh they're just cat cats maybe they just find this like threatening and but then but then i was like oh no i think these are like these, these are like like the protester cats yeah these these are like the subversive cats i think that,
1: that that's cuz <laughs> what we see of the cat kingdom it seems like really brutal it seems like life is cheap yeah yeah <laughs> so, um there's a there's a sequence where uh the ki- the cat king is is desperate to entertain uh haru when she's um sort of not having a good time having just been transformed into a cat and so there's like this a montage of different people trying to entertain her. And if you can't entertain her, you get chucked out the top of the castle.
0: Or if you laugh at the entertainer that nobody else is laughing at, you get chucked out the top. Uh, I, I mean, they land on their feet. Joke. They land on their feet. Is so, that the implication there? Is that, that it's just like, I, I hope so.
1: <laughs> so I can say, um, this is based off of a manga and the Internet Archive, Archive.org, mm-hmm. is a wonderful, amazing place that should be protected and is under attack and all that sucks. Go donate money to archive, Archive.org if you can. Archive.org, I was able to check out from their library the Cat Returns manga. Mm-hmm. And that has more fleshed out. It's, it's pretty similar to the movie. Again, they were developed side by side. Right. So it, there's not a lot of uh, liberties being taken mm-hmm. either way. Um, but it's sort of explicit that in the manga that the cat kingdom is sort of where you go as a cat when you like want to sort of preserve where you are in life. Mm -hmm. Um, You don't, you don't, everyone in cat kingdom is immortal. They Mm -hmm. don't die. They don't age. They stay the way they are. But in the cat in the real world, and there's even a scene where um, Haru's mom goes, it's so sad. You know, they die so early, you know, they, they live so short, such short lives um, when talking about like why they shouldn't get another cat or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. Um, They only, you know, have like, you know, 12 years or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So the idea is it is this place where people... Have sort of uh, these cats have sort of like retreated from connection with human beings and and like tangible worlds and like they're sort of uh, hiding from the realities of mortality. Again, it's still a fluffy. Even the manga is not like super fleshed out. It's still right, but, but um, in the manga, Yuki, the the pretty white cat voiced by Judy Greer, mm-hmm. is not a random stray who Haru fed one day. Uh, she is Haru's former pet and right. they used to be super close and she thought that Yuki ran away one day and just never came back and what it was is Yuki realized that she wasn't going to be able to stay with Haru forever because of because mm-hmm. of she would you know age and die in the real world so she fled to the cat kingdom but she was always sort of looking out for her From beyond, why does Yuki have these powers to sort of communicate through worlds and like see what's going on and like spy? It's the power of love, I suppose. There's not, there's no explanation. (laughs) Oh, the power of love! It's the power of love. It's a mysterious thing. Can make a poor man weep, make a rich man sing. I don't know all the words to the (laughs) Huey Lewis song. Don't give me that look. I'm just saying, (laughs) uh, more than a feeling. I'm just saying you don't need credit cards to ride this train. That's all I'm saying. Okay.
0: Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
1: Um, <laughs> Not the
0: Robert Zemeckis podcast.
1: So, at any rate, this is a the Cat Kingdom is a it's a very strange because it's also like this weird ag- ag- agrarian society where there's like people who live in like grass huts outside of the castle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I they live in. I was wondering if they have like subterranean homes because. They they basically live in in like these these earthen mounds that are just a little bit bigger than their own body. So I have to assume it's subterranean. I have to assume that there's some hobbit architecture going on, and, that and makes that's sense. not the whole. Even, even even though cats don't live underground,
1: <laughs> it's more I, of a rabbit. I don't thing.
0: know there's there's dogs at court. That's like, true. The cat kingdom just randomly has non anthropomorphized dogs. Yeah, who are the same size as the cats. They're not like smaller pets. They're they're like there. Um, they seem to be understanding of what's going on, but they're on all fours and not wearing clothing, whereas the cats are... Some of the cats wear clothing. Some of the cats don't wear clothing.
1: Uh, I, I, the important thing about The Cat Returns, and I, we're jumping all around because there's really not much of a plot. Girl gets whisked away to a magical land, has an adventure, comes back home, learns about the power of her inner beauty or whatever. Um, the thing that is important about some cats having clothes and some cats having not, some cats being more anthropomorphized than others is it makes some of them sexy. (laughs) And ultimately, this is a story about a furry discovering she's a furry and going, wait a second. I think I know, I think I learned something about myself. I knew I liked that cute boy. There's another part of me I didn't know about. And that's that sometimes cats are sexy.
0: So the Baron. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: Voiced by Carrie Elwes. In Very, both movies. In, in both b- movies. That's true. Very elegant.
0: Yes. He's dashing, sophisticated, brave, old world European. Um, you know, uh, and and yes, uh, Haru definitely has some some moments where she just gets lost in his eyes, and uh, <laughs> immediately.
1: So, so when she goes to the cat kingdom, part of her going through that portal is that she shrinks down to cat size. So, in the real world, when the cats all show up, they're all tiny compared to her because they're cat size and she's human size. Um, when she first meets the Baron, he is smaller than the average house cat um and she is still full human size and she looks down at him and goes oh <laughs> <laughs>
0: And and she and I don't think she's the only one when, when the Baron makes his dramatic appearance at court, the, the king's right hand man goes, Oh, he's so cool, he's so handsome. <laughs> so so she's not the only one who's who's taking he's not even a cat. He is he's That's a true. cat figurine who uh basically had a velveteen rabbit happen to him where it's like, oh, he was crafted with so much love that he gained his his life and his yeah. sentience. Um that power of love really works on multiple levels in yeah. this movie, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's not, he's not even a, a cat. Like he has uh, all the other cats have paw hands, and he has like human hands. But walks but, with a
1: cane. Yeah.
0: But but he is he is the sexiest cat. Yeah. Um But the, but but there is kind of this like uh, running ambivalence through the movie of Haru's. Relationship with the cats, um, you know. Uh, after she saves Prince Loon, um, she's informed that the Cat King is going to uh, have the two of them get married, and she's like, "I don't want to marry a cat." And then when she um, when she gets to the kingdom, she's not still not interested in marrying a cat, but she's like, oh, maybe I could fit into the society. Maybe life would be better as a cat. And then mm-hmm. uh, she she keeps having to follow uh, the, the the Baron. So of course, because of the kind of movie it is, they have to have some kind of um, message, you know, uh, some kind of moral that is directly stated several times. And in this movie, it's believe in yourself and it it doesn't seem to be so much about uh Haru's confidence as it is about her remembering that she's a human and remembering that she does not belong in the cat kingdom because she has these moments where she's like oh i'm she she's kind of uh, getting seduced by the fantasy of of being a princess in a mm-hmm. kingdom and um you know not having to worry about um her normal life worries but then she kind of snaps out of it and says no i can't i can't be here i can't do this uh And the the Baron seems to be a sort of uh, conflicting... influence on her because on one hand he's telling her remember who you are believe in yourself but on the other hand uh she she gets very enamored with him mm-hmm. and there's even a moment where uh she she's kind of uh they, they're dancing um this waltz and she's kind of getting lost in his eyes and thinking about how dreamy he is and then like she sprouts whiskers is, <laughs> is
1: she full blown gets aroused and there's like a there's like a joke about it by her, by the whiskers sprouting out when she gets turned on it's 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 a bit more Body than you might expect from yeah. Studio Chibli, as coded yeah. as it is. I think the thing about uh, Haru is her passivity. Is that she feels like she's a mess. She's someone who's always late. She yeah. always wakes up late. She's always on the run. She she's constantly late to class, and she feels overlooked and ignored by the boys she likes, mm-hmm. and she just doesn't feel like she quite uh you know has her shit together, mm-hmm. and. Um, all these cats come by after she saves this prince, and they're constantly telling her how beautiful she is. Right. And, and they're constantly telling her, like, no, 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 this is what, you know, trust us. This is what's going to be good for you. We know you're really going to love this. Like, you you don't even know. This is going to be your new life. It's going to mm-hmm. be great. Don't even worry about it. You, mm-hmm. you might be apprehensive or whatever. Everyone mm-hmm. gets the jitters. But, like, trust us. Like, you're really hot, and so is the prince. It's all going to work out. Yeah. And at the beginning, she's very passive, and she just, like, sort of, uh, doesn't want to be a piece she doesn't want to uh add any friction to anything she she doesn't want to assert herself her mm-hmm. voice um like when she gets to the bureau there's two moments where uh the 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 members of the cat bureau um one of which who's a cat one of which who is a statue and one of which who's a bird statue <laughs> the cat bureau um they, when she gets to the cat bureau like they start fighting and then she is instantly like oh I I'll go. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to bother you. A voice told me to come here, but clearly I'm just making everything worse. I'm sorry. And when she does it a second time, that's when the cat Baron sits her down. like, look, just please one thing, just be yourself. Just assert yourself. Just like be confident in who you are. And her sort of moment of growth at the end is when the prince comes back and says, well, I don't want to marry Haru. I want to marry Yuki. The King's like, "Mm, well, she can marry me. And then she's just like, you know what? Fuck you. No, I'm not gonna marry <laughs> the weird ass cat, your eyeballs going in two different directions. You're like, park chameleon, you freak. Get out of here. I'm not marrying a cat, and that's final. And that's like the growth moment is like she actually it, she right. she becomes the point of friction it to in order to assert what she wants.
0: Right, right.
1: Um the Baron, I I like that the Baron notices that she thinks he's hot and he is sort of doing the like responsible adult thing at like young girls attention to him where he's like that's nice yeah (laughs) like she's like i have to say I kind of a crush on you and he does not encourage it anyway he just goes it's nice that you're honest
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a little bit like like twin peaks with uh
1: yes dale cooper and uh, uh uh
0: Aubrey? Uh, uh, audrey. Audrey. audrey audrey yeah yes yes yeah with yeah with dale cooper and audrey where she's uh completely head over heels in love with him and he's like i am a professional and you are in high school and
1: you'll be just fine so don't worry about yeah. it you, like he, he's like shaking her feelings into concern while like rejecting this this uh, setup yeah. so I, I do like that about the baron that he's just like though then again he does dance with her but maybe that's Maybe that's just his way of getting close enough to her that she can see through the mask he's wearing and see it.
0: Oh, yeah. I think that that's definitely part because of um, when she gets transported to the Cat Kingdom, they get separated. And I think that is the, his way of, like, reconnecting with her so that they can um, help her escape I, from the from the castle. I don't think there was anything untoward about that. Oh, yeah. No, no. no. I just... Um, so to, so to kind of um, go back to what you were saying about... Um, uh, Haru's growth over the course of the movie from sort of, um, you know, being, being timid and passive to learning how to assert herself. This is a, a fairy tale, um, basically. And, uh, we were talking a bit about, um, you know, fairy tale tropes and archetypes and, and things like that. And, uh, I was doing a little bit of digging into, um, like, uh, I was doing a bit of digging into folktales and myths where um, a human and and an animal are betrothed to each other. Cat Returns does not really fit into the like old traditional folktale tropes um, that tend to come up. with the older animal bridegroom uh trope you see you, you have things like beauty and the beast you have things like the frog prince even in in greek mythology you have um eros and psyche um well he, i mean in that he's more of like a mysterious monster than he is like a animal but in those tales it's more about um a a young human woman who is against her will connected or betrothed to a mysterious animal figure. But then through her own tenacity, either going on an adventure or asserting herself or whatever the conflict and the resolution is, what tends to come out of that is that the animal is not actually an animal. He's a handsome prince mm. uh, who's under a curse. So it's, it's sort of uh the, the journey there is taking off the mask of the bridegroom, taking off the the otherworldly mask to reveal the human underneath. Mm. Um, that's not really what is happening in this movie because you have the cat prince who is a cat and he is the cattest cat, whoever catted. You have Haru who... Uh, is the humanist human whoever humaned and um, at the end of the movie they are they are just sort of nodding to each other on the street Mm -hmm. um however there there is a story archetype that cat returns does fall into a polytheist author uh her name is uh, sarah kate istra winter she has done a lot of her research into um a story archetype or trope that she calls uh girls underground um and she's written a book on it um and it's uh, you, you think of like uh, alice in wonderland being the classic example and she has uh looked at dozens if not hundreds of examples of this story it tends to be more modern mm. the, these tend not to be uh stories that are um you know as old as you know things like the frog prince or uh, eris and psyche of course but um I, you know th- there are connections there um so on her website she has a uh blurb that gives like an overview of what that classic girl's underground story is mm-hmm. um so i went through it i looked at it i took out the parts that were not in The Cat Returns, but I only took out three things. Okay. <laughs> so this is the story archetype of The Girl Underground as written by Sarah Kate Winter, and I lightly edited, edited it to take out the few story details that don't pop up in The Cat Returns. Um, literally took out three things. A girl enters the other world often because of a foolish mistake or wish, most notably resulting from dissatisfaction with her life. She is initially aided or guided by a creature from that world. She usually acquires or brings along more than one companion often otherworldly beings or animals, and together they navigate a strange path of labyrinthine nature. They are thwarted along the way by an adversary and the adversary's minions. If the adversary is male, there can be some romantic or sexual aspect to their relationship. During the journey, the girl is sometimes drugged and or spends time forgetting herself. She interacts with people or things that are somehow connected to her normal life at home. There is often an issue of time running out or time behaving strangely. When she nears her goal, she is separated from her companions for a while. In the end, she is changed irrevocably.
1: That's yeah. That's the cat return. Yeah. Literally a labyrinth. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. They they literally have to go through a labyrinth. Um, she discovers that uh, that Yuki, the cat who's been helping her in this world, is this kitten who she fed in her real life. Um, you know, back home. Um. You know, uh, she's uh, she has a, a, a um, she's almost forced to be married to her adversary. Yeah, it is it is cl- classic. I mean, it, it, it Cat Returns is on the official list, sure. Um, but yeah, it is it it very closely adheres to this trope.
1: The um the thing I find I found a little bit disappointing because there's only one instance of it that I picked up, and I've seen this now three times, mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, I was looking for it the second two times. Um, was the Wizard of Oz factor where it's like Dorothy's, uh, I forget if it's like her uncle, her her uncle's friend. I forget who the the men in her life who then show up in Oz oh, as Tin right, Man right. and everyone else. Yeah,
0: they're like the farmhands. The farmhands, and, exactly. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, there's that there's that sense of like her quotidian life sort of becoming fantastic right. through the power of this journey or whatever and there's only one instance in the cat returns which is when she's late for school and she's running to school there is just a bunch of goons on a baseball team who are oh, right. marching down the stairs <laughs> right, and she blocking loses her
0: shoe and then and then she's trying to get it but th- but the bros have to keep their heart rate up going
1: as this like endless parade of baseball players yeah. <laughs> like runs between her and her shoe and that is the soldiers who start chasing after her right. when they're in the labyrinth they do the exact same thing they run down the stairs going hop, 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 hop. right and I right. was like and when I saw that I was like oh there must be like all these little bits and pieces that are but it's it's like not that rigorously told no, of the story. I, I didn't.
0: Yeah, I didn't pick up anything either. I mean, she has a she has a, a gal pal at school who is nothing like Yuki, right? Uh, who's her closest thing to a gal pal in, mm-hmm. in the cat kingdom, um, and 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 that does that does happen a lot in in these kinds of stories where um, if it's not like a a direct twinning in something like Coraline Mm -hmm. um you at least have where it's it's this sort of like dreamlike thing like an Alice in Wonderland kind of thing um where it's just sort of like like images of her life in the fantasy world I guess I guess there are a few um sort of modern japanese touches to the cat kingdom that's true um like like there's there's a moment where um where the baron comes in and interrupts the feast that the cat king is throwing for haru and there's a big brawl and you see that uh there's uh those like uh soy sauce dispensers with the red tops <laughs> on the tables
1: you've seen it at every restaurant every pan asian restaurant you've ever yeah, been to yeah
0: exactly it, Or. um the, the King has a surveillance system that is magical, but it's also like being recorded on VCR and there's stacks of, of video mm-hmm. cassettes in his, you know, secret hideout. You know, so there are those little touches, which uh, again, because they're not really part of like anything thematic or setting the mood, to me that just felt kind of going back to the sort of metafiction of like, oh, this is a 13-year-old girl who's writing this. Sure, that yeah, that, makes um, that, sense. that just kind of felt like an anachronism that she wouldn't think about until she goes back and edits.
1: A funny, a funny thing about uh, this story in particular, and I think this is probably why emotionally this movie really has no heft at all, mm-hmm. is that her home life seems totally cool. Like, it doesn't, like, yeah. she doesn't really have any major drama. Like, the boy she likes is dating someone else. And she has ADHD or whatever, yeah, you know, yeah. she's, she's late for school all the time, mm-hmm. but like, but like she has a really nice, fun, uh, playful relationship with her mother. Yeah. There isn't this sense of like, oh, there's something I'm escaping at home that mm-hmm. is dreary or bleak mm-hmm. or, you know, the the way that uh, Dorothy and wizard of Oz, you know, has to, it wants to escape the the sort of plain life of, of being a Kansas farm. Right. Her, her relationship with her friend is very fun. The little scene they have together where her friend is teasing her, trying mm-hmm. to get her to flirt with the boy that she already knows is dating. someone, like, that's right. all fun and stuff. Right. Um. And so this idea of like, oh, of course she would want to escape and find something else. That never really registers too strongly. And then when she makes the choice to return, that also is not like, a, oh, she must have really grown to want to come back to this. It, it always just... Um, It is just a very relentlessly silly um, and relentlessly paced uh, tale of just like, and then this happened and this happened and she just sort of gets swept up into it.
0: Yeah, I was comparing the relationship with her mother a little bit to uh, the relationship between Shizuku and her mother in Whisper of the Heart. That's true. Um, because I, I just noticed that like uh, messiness was uh, sort, sort of a, a hallmark of, of both characters' personalities. Um, Shizuku, I mean, of course, Whisper of the Heart is a bit more about the relationship. So um, the relationship between Shizuku and her mother is a bit more fleshed out and there is more room for conflict. But otherwise, it, it did seem pretty similar where um you know shizuku and haru kind of have their own lives and their mothers seem to have their own lives too where like haru's mother is like 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 a quilter or an artist of some kind and kind of um like she she's not at all a helicopter mother she's just kind of doing her thing and and they kind of cross paths when they cross paths and it's the same thing in whisper of of the heart um you know, again, kind of feeding into my theory of like, uh, the of of the metafiction where it's like, oh, uh, Haru's a little bit of a Mary Sue. In
1: you know, there you've brought up a lot of good points in that regard. Where that I totally because the story in this is not the story she writes it, that you see her writing in Whisper of the Heart. I just discounted it, other than like, oh yeah, sure. they they took this character and did something different. But like, I that does make this make a lot of sense. Um, a lot of the approaches to the storytelling. Um, Especially when you look at like where this exists in the Studio Ghibli filmography, Mm -hmm. um, where this is this like tossed off sort of a thing. It has a much smaller budget than Spirited Away or Howl's Moving Castle, which it uh, was made in between. Mm -hmm. Um, It was originally going to be a direct to video thing. And then uh, they were impressed enough with the direction it was going that it did get a theatrical release in Japan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it was successful in Japan, I think. Studio Ghibli movies are pretty consistently successful in Japan, whether or not they sense. do anything here. Um, but, like, it does make, uh, it does at least have, it is, but it is more interesting when you do consider that metafictional um, aspect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think another reason why this movie works really well is I actually really like Anne Hathaway, who does the voice of Haru. Mm. And I'm not necessarily like an Anne Hathaway, like I don't love her or hate her or anything. I'm She's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't have a lot of strong feelings about Anne Hathaway. But I will say that like the thing that I think puts people off Anne Hathaway um, is that she's she feels very like theatrical and she feels a little bit hammy and she feels a little bit Mm -hmm. she doesn't uh, often give performances that feel completely natural Mm -hmm. and I think that is actually what makes her a perfect uh, like protagonist for this kind of anime because she has this sort of like slightly bigger. Uh, kookier reaction to everything. It's mm-hmm. a little bit more overtly comedic, and it's and it has a lot more. I, I honestly like a lot of these Disney dubs. I'm not always a huge fan of because sometimes they will choose people who don't have a lot of personality in their voice, and mm-hmm. instead of like casting professional English voice actors, they will cast a character actor when those are two different disciplines mm-hmm. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, which maybe brings us to Yuki, uh, Judy <laughs> Greer. What do you think about Judy Greer in this movie? Mm-hmm her very first vo- voice performance. Oh, really? Yes.
0: It seems like this this is like early enough in her career where the the Greer magic has not been established yet. Um this is, you know, it's 2005, she's still in her best friend period mm-hmm. and Maybe we could add the cat returns to the, the films that make up Judy Greer being America's best friend. You know what? That's a good point. I didn't think about <laughs> um, that. She she is. I mean, I mean even though the romantic arc arc is hers and not Haru's, she pretty much exists in the film to support Haru. Right. Um, her uh, Yuki is uh, very quiet, very passive. Um, I, I mean, uh, Judy Greer's performance is given in this like very breathy whisper. She's speaking in her upper register the whole time. Like it's it's just very. Uh yeah, very slight and passive. I mean, you you just think of this like 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 uh, like like a like a shy little cat who doesn't really want to come out from under the couch when when company's there. That is completely the, por- yeah. the performance that she's giving.
1: And and the and the character design of the cat. She has this nice little bow around her neck. Yeah. And she's very view- beautiful and fluffy and looks very elegant. Yeah. in a way that I just like. That's not Judy Greer.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and I mean, just character wise, she doesn't have a lot to work with. She's really just there to um to say you know oh poor miss haru and to give exposition and then get married at the end which good for her but i mean i mean there's no it comes out of nowhere it comes absolutely out of nowhere where prince loon shows up at the end and he's like oh by the way i wanted to marry yuki and yuki's like okay and you're like okay good for them i guess because now now haru doesn't have to marry him but it's not like oh this grand love affair it's like Oh, oh good. well, at least they're the same species. I guess that's good,
1: right? <laughs> I, I want I want to amend what I said just real quick. She did a voice on a random episode of Family Guy, where she was listed as various <laughs> on IMDb. <laughs> uh, I was looking that this,
0: classic role. This
1: movie came out in Japan before that Family Guy role, but uh-huh. the the Judy Greer performance is right. like her second vocal because I, I do think of I one of the reasons I was excited to cover this movie on this podcast was that I do think of Judy Greer as a very prolific voice actor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Obviously her role on Archer, Mm -hmm. but she, you know, if you look at most like adult animated cartoons, she, there's usually an episode where she pops up and does a voice or whatever. Mm -hmm. She is just, you know, the same way she acts on all sorts of TV shows that way. Mm -hmm. Like um, she has a very expressive, very, very, powerful very uh able to go very big and kooky and larger than life mm-hmm. in a way that is like uh just makes a lot of sense for most cartoons yeah um but it's just not this role not this yeah not this no
0: movie. I, I mean she does have there, there is like like a sweetness and a vulnerability to her um you know, sure. that she does bring to this role and, um, you know, she is able to convey that character. But I feel like the way that that sweetness and vulnerability usually shows up in is in ways that aren't so self-conscious. Um, like I was looking on her Instagram um before we started the episode and she threw out the opening day pitch for the Dodgers um so there was just a little video of that and she's just having the time of her life she's on the pitcher's mound she throws it and then she's like you know you know she's like raising her arms in victory and jumping up and down and she's just like so happy to be there and it's so sweet and so vulnerable but it it wouldn't be like like Yuki would probably just be like oh no I couldn't possibly (laughs) she's
1: she's she's (laughs) definitely the shy girl anime trope
0: yes yeah uh, yeah she's absolutely absolutely where, where she just be like but everyone would be looking at me and a, a, a baseball i've never played baseball. but no judy Greer is just out there like have like being a big dork and having having a great time and just charming everyone and um y- you know the, the the similar qualities but very different personalities this just isn't her her movie i mean no. she's basically there to move the plot along no
1: tim curry right there like yeah. perfect yeah. uh andy richter
0: oh my god <laughs> <laughs> Andy Richter he plays like
1: the herald of the y- cat king. Yes,
0: he yes, he he is he's is, uh yeah, he's the herald of the cat king um and he is he's so I I don't think I have ever seen a movie knowing that Andy Richter was was giving a a, a voice performance in it, but he's so funny in this movie. He he is just relentlessly cheerful even when he is pulling off some kind of nefarious plot and and he just has this sort of like like jolly approach to everything and it's just real gee whiz he reminds me a little bit of uh that Portlandia sketch with Kamel Nanjiani yes, yes, as, the, as waiter. the waiter, where it's just like, it's like, oh, he's there to serve, but he's got a lot of power, and he just has this like little bit of smugness where it's like he knows it, and he knows you know it, yeah, the, yeah. Um, Peter Boyle and, Ari- Peter and Gould. Peter Boyle
1: so so funny in this. The, yeah. the this is Peter Boyle sort of at the height of the. Uh, um, Everybody loves, Raymond, oh yeah. Um, as just, and he is just be being that real grump. Um, yeah. I, I I did want to
0: ask. Sure.
1: I did want to ask you Uh because Muda is a very fat cat. Yes. Um, And you are the author of the blog Panda Bear Shape that explores fat characters in cinema. Yes. I was wondering what you thought of this depiction of a fat character in a movie. Oh,
0: boy. (laughs) So. hmm.
1: On a problematic scale. On a Brandon Fraser to heavyweight scale.
0: God. yeah yeah we're not even gonna talk about the whale <laughs> um as i have written panda bear shape which is on indefinite hiatus but you know may- maybe one day it's this is still something that i think about a lot and the um, and the
1: essays that were written there are still there are lessons that you can broadly apply to all sorts of movies yeah, because oh, absolutely, these characters absolutely. tend to fall into tropes so yeah. it's still good worth going back and reading those essays
0: thank you um I do find some conflict when there's a character who I like, but does fall into those tropes. And I'm sure that a lot of people kind of have have that conflict. I tend to be someone who has a twisted, I hate to use that word, but sort of a a twisted affection for grotesque characters um, where... Uh, you, you know, I, I guess especially, especially when it when it comes to just like ways in which I'm marginalized and like as as a fat person, that's obviously why I'm why I think about this stuff so much. Um, but like when it's a fat character who is fucking ruining everything for the thin characters, I I do feel this like little sense of delight in that where I'm like, well, you. Deserve it because you've just been calling this character fatso the whole movie.
1: I think that is a very <laughs> uh, a more common thing than you might think. I think there's yeah. a lot of marginalized people... Who, especially in the queer community, when you look at the uh, queer-coded villains mm. of Disney mm-hmm. movies, when you look at the trans uh, yeah. villains of thrillers or horror movies, I think that there are a lot of queer and trans people who have a lot of affection for those characters because
0: everyone loves Ursula,
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's it's a lot because it's a lot of fun, and you can get um, a sort of uh, antagonistic glee from watching these people wield power however they wield power.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So Muta is... In Whisper of the Heart, Muta is just like like a regular cat. He's the kind of cat who is um, an outdoor cat who everybody feeds. So he just he just rules the roost. He just he just goes around Tokyo wherever he wants to go. He doesn't have to be friendly to anybody. He
1: enjoys antagonizing dogs. Yeah,
0: he enjoys antagonizing dogs. He'll he'll jump on the back of your bike if he wants to jump on the back of your bike. Muta the fat cat is just d- delightful. Does not doesn't does not give a fuck. A plus fat character in, in
1: Whisper, Whisper of, of the, the Heart. Heart.
0: In Whisper of the Heart. Yeah. In The Cat Returns, I think the Baron is the only one who doesn't make a shitty comment about him being fat. Mm-hmm. So so Muta and, and Toto the Raven have a very antagonistic relationship. I mean, every other line that Toto says is like some shitty comment about Muta's weight. Haru... Even at the end, literally the last scene where the cat bureau is going back to whatever the hell the cat bureau does, <laughs> and she's waving goodbye to them. She says goodbye, Baron. Goodbye, Toto. Goodbye, Fatso. <laughs> like, really. A- after, after, after. He Lute's, saved your life. He, yeah, put, he put his life on the line once, so many more times. More than once. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, well, you're buddies now, so yeah, you, you could just, you could just, you know... <laughs> Why, why why don't you hang out with him and complain about the five pounds that you gained? He goes
1: he goes he goes full uh, he goes full Errol Flynn Robin Hood swinging around the uh, the court.
0: Uh, on yeah. A, yeah, on yeah to a, save uh, her. He is he's a very brave character. He doesn't take shit from anyone. I mean, he, even though he he kind of constantly gets these barbs thrown at him. I mean, I mean he's tough. He says what's on his mind. He fights you know as much as the Baron does. Um, so so he is heroic in that way. There's just uh uh kind of a thing with him eating yeah that's really off-putting there's a scene early in the movie where they first show up to the cat kingdom uh to the castle he as her as haru's bodyguard is incapacitated because he is uh brought to a waiting room where there are refreshments including a giant vat of jelly that uh you know you, you don't see what happens this this again is uh um something in this movie where uh, something happens off screen and you just kind of have to take for granted that that's the thing now but you know you know he sees this giant vat of jelly and and maybe he got picked up and tossed into it but uh th- the official story that Andy Richter's character gives is oh he he was just he loved the jelly so much that he that he dove in and he drowned in it's it It's a catnip
1: jelly. Yeah, it's a catnip jelly. He got too he, intoxicated yeah. and drowned in it
0: yeah um i mean I mean after devouring like a few trays of goodies and you know he's he's just he's very uh Food oriented, Um, and to the point where, like, he
1: is very shrewd and he understands the cat kingdom better than anyone because he was there. We find his backstory is that he ate every (sighs) single fish in the lake. Yeah, so yeah, so during
0: the during the climactic moment, um, the 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 sort of cat grand vizier keeps saying like, "Why do I know that cat? Why does he look familiar?" And then you find out at the end that Muta's actual name is Ronaldo Moon, and he is the cat who ate all the fucking food in the cat kingdom. (laughs) That's his backstory.
1: At any rate, his, his familiarity with the Cat Kingdom.
0: I'm sorry, they even have like a mural <laughs> on the wall in this like ancient tower where it's just this like, you know, ancient looking uh, uh painting of him eating all the fucking fish in the lake. Like, what the fuck? <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, it, and it's one of those things where it's like, he is her bodyguard. He's also her guide. He, right. The Baron does not uh, make it to the cat kingdom with those two. Right. So he sort of de facto has to be her protector. And when she is sort of looking around being like, wow, what a cool place. Maybe I should live here. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to be a cat. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad to marry the kid. Or he, he's like, kid, this isn't what you think it is. You yeah. gotta go. Yeah. Like, he he is totally on the ball until the moment anyone ever mentions food. And then yeah. it's like someone has turned the switch off in his brain. He goes, all right, let me eat. There's like the moment early on where the Baron's like, I'm going to go to the cat kingdom and investigate you babysit uh, Maru uh, and Haru. And he's like, I don't want to do that. I'm leaving. And he goes, Oh, that's too bad. I was just about to get some angel food cake. He goes, all right, which cupboard is it in? And it's just like, he, he does whatever he wants to do until someone mentions food. And then it's like, he's been hypnotized. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Which is, I mean, yeah, complete, you know, boring overdone trope. It's like, well, you couldn't find another way to give him a personality. I mean, (laughs) Um, you know, so it, yeah. Um, so there were, I mean, there were things about him that definitely, you know, I enjoyed watching. I mean, especially after his backstory comes to light, where it's like, oh, he ate all the fish in the lake and then disappeared. And you, you know, of course, of course, he's being cornered with, uh, with, with Haru and the Baron, and like his his threat to them is like, yeah, and I'm gonna eat your castle now. And it's like, okay, well, like, like again, that that's sort of that little thrill of the kind of grotesqueness coming out mm-hmm. as like pushing back. You you know, when you're pushed into a corner, which I do, you know, like a lot. But ultimately, yeah, it was sort of a dark cloud hanging over this movie for me. Well, my rant is over. Um,
1: <laughs> I we... appreciate the rant. Thank you for indulging oh, me.
0: M- my pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm just glad that I don't have to go back and figure out the HTML to put links in. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps we should move on to uh, a more whimsical discussion that we like to call The other segment. The other segment. Do you want to go first? I'm going to go first. first. Okay. Okay.
1: This is a movie about a teenage girl realizing that she's a furry. and That doesn't mean (laughs) that she wants to leave her family and friends behind and marry some dude that she met once for 15 seconds. But that does mean that she thinks cats are hot. And in the spirit of this celebration of furdom, I thought we could both come up with a fursona for Judy Greer in a segment I like to call... Topia.
0: (laughs) okay
1: um would you like to start
0: sure so when i think of judy greer i think of someone who has a very a very light airy kind of energy she's always very up she's always very um like like very alert very quick movements um i think she would have an avian persona. oh um full disclosure here, I have friends who were furries. It was something that I was sort of dipping my toe into, gosh, a long time ago, like 15 years ago or so, um, sort of like poking my nose and like, oh, you know, is this something for me? Ultimately, I decided that, that completely respect furries, but it just wasn't something for me. Part of what the barrier was for me was it didn't really click for me like what goes into making a persona. So I feel like uh, as much as I liked this question when I was thinking about it, if, if I couldn't make that connection for myself, mm-hmm. it was kind of hard to make it for Judy Gray, even though she's someone that I have obviously put a lot of thought into over the past I few found months. It, I,
1: I will <laughs> say I'm in, the, I'm in the same boat. I don't. I don't. You know, I don't understand furries in the way I don't understand anything that I'm just like a community I'm not a part of. Or it's right. like, I also don't understand stamp collecting. That's fine. You know, like no right. nothing against furries or anything like that. But it's just, it's not how my brain works or anything. I've never thought of my a fursona for myself. I don't know what that would be. Mm-hmm. Um, I found it way easier to pick a Judy Greer persona because it just felt like casting.
0: Okay, okay. Well, well, I mean, all that to say is I decided that Judy Greer would be a sandpiper. Oh, <laughs> um, but when it comes into the aspects of like fleshing out the fursona, that's where I got tripped up. Sure. So I imagined like the, like, like Judy Sandpiper, who is a little Sandpiper, um, who is a librarian, uh, and is very enthusiastic about her job and loves to help people do research. And she, uh, she wears like, wire rimmed glasses uh with uh the 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 chain that goes from the frame of the glasses around her neck Mm -hmm. uh but that's as far as i got
1: (laughs) that's okay so for me i i I might have been approaching this from a slightly different angle Uh whereas i was not necessarily trying to come up with like what is the persona that best personifies Judy Greer, the person. I was thinking about it in terms of casting where I was like, what animal would I want Judy Greer to embody and do the voice of? Mm -hmm. Um, And this is not who I think she is as a person, but I think this is a character that she could play well. And so I was thinking of it more in terms of like, if it was her OC in a role-playing game or something like Uh that, This could be a character, you know, sometimes when you're doing a role playing game, it's fun to do something that's very different from yourself and to choose. And I think this is something that Judy Greer would, this is a persona that she would have a lot of fun with and surprise. She's a scaly because (laughs) uh, she is a salamander and she's a very salty salamander I said that she has yellow skin with pink spots because she's. I had to think of a way to make a salamander look very feminine. Mm-hmm. And so that was the color thing. She has a long blonde ponytail. I looked up some scalies and uh-huh. a lot of them have hair hair. So all I was right. just like, all right, salamanders mm-hmm. can have hair. Um, I was thinking about her in terms of like being a condescending yoga teacher. Um, <laughs> she has a long blonde ponytail. She's like in athleisure wear. She's got like green in green crop top, green yoga pants. Um, I I can picture this It's great. Yeah. And I'm just thinking about like a salamander who she's a yoga teacher because she's just so flexible, Mm -hmm. but because it's just like, well, yeah, that's what your body is. You're a salamander, but she just gets mad that everyone like, she, you know, it's a fursona thing. So there's like all it's, there's all sorts of animals in her yoga class, but when the bear can't bend backwards the way she does, she has no patience. And she's like, no, that's not what I'm doing. Look at what I'm doing. I, I can imagine those like narrow eyes is just her looking at at you very unimpressed. She's like the kind of person that when you're talking, she kind of just is like waiting for you to stop talking so she could <laughs> go about her day. Um, I don't have a care. I don't have a name for this persona, but I think I think Judy Greer as the sarcastic salamander yoga teacher is something that could uh, very well exist.
0: This is bringing up uh, yoga, uh, yoga class anxiety for me. <laughs> <laughs> have I mean, you had? Have you had this yoga teacher? I, I, I have. I have not had this particular yoga teacher, but um, I usually they'll just be like, "Oh, just go into child's pose," and then it's like, "Okay, I will just crunch myself into a ball <laughs> and stay here because I because you did not plan for me being as inflexible <laughs> as I am." So I, I love salamander yoga teacher Judy Greer
1: <laughs> and that's that's my that's that's a uh, judetopia that's uh... the <laughs> Those are the Judy Greer personas that we came up with. Go ahead and uh, send us an email with your own. What's What's that email address, Reg? It's
0: 96greers at proton.me.
1: If you have a fursona, because there's people who are listening who probably more tapped into this than we are. You want to hear your Judy Greer fursona. That is something I am particularly interested in.
0: If you want to send us art of the Judy Greer fursona, um, send us art.
1: Yeah, all the better. I, did, I, didn't, I didn't feel comfortable demand, I, demanding such a thing, but like... I would love to see the salivander. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be really funny.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, we have
1: another other segment.
0: We do, we do. Um, so, you know, uh, my my kind of takeaway from watching Cat Returns and and kind of where my mind was uh, was, of course, the the fairy tale archetypes mm-hmm. of. Um, you know, a, a human traveling into another world um, that is strange and mysterious to them, and learning something that that they bring back to their human life. Um, so, uh, my segment is that we pitch a fantasy movie where Judy Greer goes on a journey of self-discovery in a magical land. Uh, I am call I am calling this segment Greer it away.
1: Oh, I love it! Very good. <laughs>
0: So, so Patrick, why don't, why don't you tell me what your movie's about?
1: Okay. Well, you, there has to be an arc, right? So I was looking at Judy Greer, the person, and mm-hmm. I said, what is Judy Greer, the person's tragic flaw? And it's very obvious. It's sort of the namesake of our podcast. She's a workaholic. She just keeps making movies. Um, she is, she is a relatively young actor uh, to have made as many fucking movies as she has. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking, I was thinking like, what story would have Judy Greer whisked away to learn the value of just slowing down and saying no to roles and just and and you know, stopping and smelling the flowers. So what happens is, I, I thought of like a phantom toll booth setup where okay. a package arrives one day and she thinks it's a Peloton, but it's really a magic treadmill that only goes at super slow speeds. And she keeps cranking it up and it just keeps getting slower and slower. And she just keeps cranking and cranking. And she's like, well, something's wrong with this. It's, it's going at 0.3 miles per hour. And then eventually she gets off. And But when she leaves her little exercise room and she opens the door, she realizes that she has been transported away to Slow World. And she goes and she meets a, 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 all sorts of different artists who teach her the value of being whatever the opposite of prolific is. I specifically searched online. I said, what is the antonym of prolific? And they were all like involved gestation. So that it was all like barren and like, that's not what I meant. So I don't know what the opposite of prolific is, but mm-hmm. she meets a pre-tree of life, Terrence Malick, who <laughs> released movies every nine to 15 years. And he tells her, you know... If you keep making movies, you won't have time to run your fingertips against long grass. (laughs) And she goes, that's a good point. And then she runs into Fiona Apple. And Fiona Apple is like, every time I do something, it's an event. When was the last time it felt like an event when you were in a movie? And Judy Greer is like, oh, that's too bad. I, 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 I would love to be an event. And then she runs into Simon Callow, the author of the Orson Welles biographies. Oh, and, when's
0: the fourth one going to come out? And Simon we don't know. and
1: Simon Callow tells her, "You know what? That dude's dead. I, I, I'm not missing anything. I could take my time on this. There's no there's no new Orson Welles uh, life that is happening that I need to chase after. I'm just going to write these books at my own speed." Uh, Radiohead and Portishead have a sort of Hatfields and McCoys thing going in like an old Western town. Um, Portishead's much slower, so uh, Radiohead gets very frustrated. They've been slowing down their releases, trying to get as slow as Portishead. Um, She runs into Dr. Dre, and Dr. Dre goes, you know what you can do is you can say you're going to release an album and just say that every year. And every time you're interviewed, people ask you about it. You go, yeah, it's just around the corner. And then what you got to do, here's the real hot move. You say, yeah, I did it. It wasn't good enough. So no one's ever going to hear it. I trashed it. And she's like, wow, doing a movie and never, never come out. I never would have even thought about that. Um, And also there's just like a tons of sloths and slow lorises hanging around. It's a very cute, you know, fantasy world. But eventually what happens, you know, there's the balance, right? Mm -hmm. She She learns to appreciate slowness, but she has to realize not to go too far. And she ventures into a dark cave. And she decides, I'm never going to leave the, the slow world. I'm gone, never going to do any work again. And then she hears this ominous voice. Yes, that's right. Never do any work again. And it's the Wizard of Slowness. George R.R. R. Martin steps out of the <laughs> shadows. And she's like, no! <laughs> so she has to rush home. And that is the story of Judy Greer in slow world.
0: So I'm just imagining that like, you know, how, how in the wizard of Oz, the, the kind of framing devices like, Oh, Dorothy hit her head and she was knocked unconscious. I'm imagining for slow world. It's like, Oh, Judy Greer had, had a, um, a pot brownie and got lost in Venice beach. (laughs) Judy Greer
1: had a codeine addiction (laughs) and went to slow world and Pimp C was there, and Lil Wayne was there, and Future was there.
0: <laughs>
1: That's a, Yeah, there's a whole section of Slow World that is just all of the rappers who are most enamored with co- abusing Cody. Young Thug already dresses like he's in a Studio Ghibli movie, so we're there.
0: What What if the, the guide who kind of brings her out of Slow World and, and back to... Um... Her her regular life is uh, Todd Fields. It's <laughs> <laughs> like it's time, Judy. <laughs>
1: Todd Fields is a good name. I didn't grab Todd Field there. That dude's that dude is uh, George R R Martin levels of slow. Yeah. <laughs> what but, is what is your uh, fantasy story involving Judy Greer?
0: Oh man, it is not as well fleshed out as yours. I
1: was convinced we were going to do the same story. To it, be honest, it is
0: remarkably similar. Okay, I okay. have to say, um, I guess that's what you get. For recording on a monday wah, wah, <laughs> wah. um so i was also inspired by judy greer's life mm-hmm. um recently she co-founded a line of supplements um and these are these are supplements that are uh formulated for um issues often facing middle-aged uh people who are female assigned at birth. It starts out where uh, she's a real workaholic. She has this like Midwestern work ethic. She is taking a real hands-on approach to this business. And she is out in the forest and she is searching for a rare mushroom for her latest product, which is an anti-fatigue tincture. Oh. So this is the mushroom that's going to, um, you know, you know, be um, titrated into this tincture and and, and help uh, middle aged uh, women stay girl bossing. Um, so uh, while she's out in uh, in the forest, um, she falls down a hole. And ends up in the king in a kingdom that is uh, populated by sentient plants and fungi, uh, and she uh, she tells them you know why she's out in the forest and you know she's looking for this mushroom, um, so they send her on a on a quest to to find the healing mushroom the anti-fatigue mushroom and um i was picturing it a bit like pan's labyrinth where okay. it's it's like the quests that she goes on are you know she gets sent back to her her day-to-day life and she has to do the quests there so you know she's going around you know, you know, doing these like, like weird, seemingly illogical tasks at, uh, at the supplement company and, um, on set and things like that. And she just sees where it's like, man, everyone is fatigued because they're drained by their fucking jobs and all the bullshit they have to do and all the time that they're wasting doing, nonsense and then not you know not being able to to meet their goals with the with the paychecks that they're earning uh you know she's doing all these tasks and then um you know she she comes back to her um to her her guides in the in the plant kingdom and and she you know she makes this observation and they say judy greer that's what we wanted you to learn the whole time that the real remedy is an anti-capitalist ethos (laughs) And so they send her back to the human world and she says, you know what, instead of selling supplements for uh, like premenopause and stuff like that, we are going to... You know, she 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 has her, her supplement crew gathered around her and and, and you know, she's like, We're gonna make some tweaks to this company. And they become lobbyists and they they go out and they meet with politicians, and when they meet with the politicians, they they put they sprinkle a little something in in their coffee or their bottled water, and all of a sudden, universal basic incomes being passed, <laughs> Medicare for all's being passed, guaranteed housing. And Judy Greer saves civilization.
1: I love it. It's beautiful. I want a, I want a montage of people dismantling prison set to Salisbury Hill.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And she's just kind of standing on a hill and and, and she looks down at, at like a like a dandelion and gives it a little wink. And then the, the dandelion gives a little CGI wink back to her. And yeah. Yeah. That's the end of the movie.
1: I, I really thought you were trolling me for a second. It was going to be like, so she goes down to a kingdom of mushrooms and then they send her on a quest to save let's say a princess <laughs> from oh let's say a dinosaur king
0: <laughs> listen i don't always do a great job of preparing for these episodes i do a little bit better than that though. You're, like just look at your
1: fandango listing just yeah. be like super mario brothers now in theaters <laughs> and then she fights a secret organization of assassins that's john wick for come on no <laughs> Uh, I like that. I like the idea of fun guy embodying this like anti-capitalist ethos where it's like, well, we're all one and we're all together and we yeah. we're, you know, we get what we need from the earth. And, you know, that's
0: yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking, where where it was like, you know, you don't really think of, of mushrooms as as like, you know producers it's like it's like well well they're kind of you know taking in the waste and they're taking the killer be
1: killed of the animal kingdom does not apply to mushrooms right
0: right which yeah yeah it's like you know any plant it doesn't really apply to but um but yeah you kind of think about it as like oh it's just it's just taking the the waste and it's like oh well you can kind of think of that as a freeloader but you can also think of it as like an essential part of the cycle of life so they do feel a little anti-capitalist yeah Um, anti-capitalist mushrooms i don't know how we got there on on this podcast it's the Studio but...
1: Ghibli episode <laughs> that's uh, tell me anti-capitalist yeah. mushrooms yeah. is outside of the realm of a Nausicaa Valley of the Wind or whatever <laughs> like come on that, that works that fits. yeah
0: we're not gonna be talking about this with the Halloween remake
1: probably not <laughs> Um. God by the time that rolls around we'll be so we're gonna go be like all right what worked okay anti-capitalist mushrooms let's hit that one again <laughs>
0: I pitch a movie where Judy Greer's character convinces Michael Myers to stab Jeff Bezos in the face. (laughs) The end.
1: (laughs) This is not the end of the podcast. No,
0: no, it is not. Uh, We have one more segment. Some might say... It is the most important segment. Some might say, 96 Greer's, what the fuck is that? (laughs) This is the segment that we like to call Judilization, where we look at all the movies that we have watched so far, um, Cat Returns being our seventh movie, and we rank these films in order of how well Judy Greer's talents are utilized in the film. From best judalized to worst judalized, what is the current list?
1: The current list is, number one is Good Boy, where she was the lead and she played uh, a a woman who got an emotional support dog. It was just like a role perfect for her that she made much more than what was on the script. Very good. Number two, The Wedding Planner. She was the best friend role, supportive. It's just sort of like that was the Judy Greer role. Number three, The Descendants. She plays the um, cuckolded wife, of uh Matthew Lillard and she has an emotional uh intense scene with George Clooney number four what planet are you from she plays the slightly ditzy flight attendant number five we have Pottersville where she plays Michael Shannon's best friend uh turned love who operates a cafe bakery and number six was in memory of my father where she talks to a corpse
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's about the long and short of it I'd say yeah um Patrick, uh, where would you rank Cat Returns? Yeah, I'm not
1: really 100%. It has to be in the bottom three. Okay. I don't know if it's at the bottom. I don't know if it's above or below Pottersville or In Memory of My Father. Mm -hmm. But I have to put it below What Planet Are You From? Because at least What Planet Are You From utilizes her sort of kooky comedic energy. as As thankless a role as that might be. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas... Uh, This feels more in line with Pottersville in memory of my father where it's like, I don't know if that's the uh, Judy Greer is the person you cast for this. Sure.
0: I feel pretty firm in my conviction, which is uh, that she is better utilized than in memory of my father, Mm -hmm. but worse than Pottersville. So I would put them in between that two. I think Pottersville, her role has the same or her role has similar drawbacks to cat returns um where her character is more passive keeps her emotions to herself um that's not what i think of as judy greer's strengths yeah um but in pottersville parker does get a few moments where she gets to be a bit arch she does get to be the force that that rallies the town around michael shannon's character at the end you know she does kind of um you know Um, have those moments where she you know speaks her truth and she tells people like no you're not doing the right thing here um and that seems a bit more in line with um with like a Judy Greer character that I like to see uh as opposed to to Yuki who really doesn't get to do that she is just completely uh you know meek and um and all and all sweetness and all gentleness and, and humility uh But she's not spending most of the movie talking to a corpse. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, I would put it second to last.
1: I think that is exactly right. I think The Cat Returns is our new number six above in memory of my father below Pottersville.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, Well, with uh, with the all-important utilization ranking decided I think we have another episode in the bag
1: I think so the cat is in the bag (laughs)
0: Um, join us next time where we will be watching the 2004 movie lolly love uh, which uh, it's something I've seen this
1: I have seen this movie it is a very weird time capsule
0: Well, join us next time for a very weird time capsule. (laughs) It'll also have slap bracelets. Um, 96 Greers is part of the Now Playing Network. Check out the other podcasts at nowplayingnetwork.net. Follow us on Mastodon at 96greers at laserdisc.party. Email us at 96greers at proton.me. And until next time, I'm Reg. And I'm Patrick. And say goodbye to these.